As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hi folks, welcome to episode three of the Elite Manager series in which I'll be interviewing the best fantasy Premier League managers in the world to get an insight into how they play the game we all love. Today's guest is Craig, who you'll know from his Twitter as at FPL underscore editor and also as head writer for Fantasy Football Fix, a brilliant website for FPL. Craig is a brilliant FPL manager. His record reads seven top 20k seasons which includes three top 5K finishes. And at the time of recording, Craig is currently ranked 10,614th. So he's on course for another great finish. So getting into these questions, first one, how did you first get into FPL and when was it? So I dabbled with newspaper versions of fantasy football when I was very young, but was never really committed at that point. I probably started playing fantasy football properly in college. Yahoo and the Telegraph were the formats I enjoyed at the time. I did well but no one else really played them. So I was, never really took it that seriously. And then my best friend introduced me to a more serious cash league back in 2011. Uh, and then I guess I had to make the switch because it was on a different format, which of course was FPL and the rest is history. Yeah, sounds good. I've been playing for as long as I can remember. I was, I was trying to, I tried to figure out one, one day how long I've actually been playing fantasy. And I, I pinned it on the, the, the 2002 World Cup when, when Ireland were in South Korea and Japan. I think I was 11 years old at the time. And my... My uncles have a pub in Ireland and they did a just a very basic fancy game. Uh, pick five midfielders, pick five strikers. I remember having Rocky Santa Cruz and Michael Ballack. So I caught the, the FPL drug when I was about 11 years old and, and the rest is history. How would you describe yourself as an FPL manager? Oh, I would say, say I'm aggressive in the early game weeks. Happy to take regular hits between game weeks sort of one and 10. So early on. Um, and over the years, this has allowed me to build a very solid base, which means I can really kick on from game week 11. And if an asset blanks two game weeks in a row early on and the fixtures don't look too good thereafter, I'll probably move them out in that early period quite quickly. Uh, I become more patient, I would say, in my game around game week 10 to 15 and thereafter. So I've kind of got a bit of both in my game. Sounds good. And then in terms of play style, you know, whether mm. it's conservative or risk-taking, is that reflective of you as a person? Yeah, I'd say so. I'm very spontaneous in life. I like to react to what is happening in front of me. 
not too afraid to make changes in life in general if I see things that need improving. So I think that's kind of reflected within my FPL style. And then in terms of overall rank or mini league position, what's more important mm-hmm. to you? I know when I when I started, it was all just mini leagues. I think like it starts for most yeah. people, but now it's very much so overall rank. Is that is that the same for you now? Yeah, it's a good point. I think when I first started back in 2011, as I just referenced, it would have definitely at that point been that mini league. I was entered in. We were playing for some serious cash that I thought it was serious cash at that point of time in my life. Uh, and there was only about five or six of us in that league. It was the first ever time I was in a cash league. So at that point, definitely mini league. But as soon as I realised, actually, I'm not too bad at this, it is always ranked for me. Top 10K is like the cliche target, but I still live by it. And I think with that rank, the rest, like mini leagues, for example, take care of themselves. Yeah, that's that's kind of way I've I've adopted things in recent years as well. You, You often get people... You know, writing to people like myself and yourself for advice and in particular about mini leagues you know they're thinking you know my my rival's 50 points ahead of me or, or 100 points behind me you know how should i how should i adjust and it's always my reply is always you know don't worry too much about them you know if you focus on your own team you know the, the mini league should take care of itself i always say let them worry about you instead you know let them try and second guess you and, and make the mistakes but very much you know focus on your own team uh, and, and everything else should really just look after itself then how much football do you watch craig are you focusing on highlights? Do you get time to watch full matches over the course of any given game week? How many full matches do you watch or is it is it match of the day? I think with a young family, I do not really have the luxury of watching too much football these days. Uh, however, I do do my best to watch most evening games on Fridays, Saturdays and Mondays, as well as have the footy on in the background on a Sunday if we're at home. Highlights are so well put together these days, so I don't really panic if I haven't seen too much for a week or two. Yeah, it was very interesting when when FPL Salah was on uh, on the previous episode. I was quite surprised that he he also said he doesn't. He's got a young family as well, so doesn't watch many full matches at all. And I've relied on the eye test big time for for years. You know, I don't have young kids yet, so that will hopefully change soon. But it's it kind of shows me that you don't need to watch games. You don't need to watch a huge amount of games to actually do well at this game. You can you can actually watch zero 90 minute games. Uh, and you can still do well. So that's, I think that's that's what I like so much about AFPL. Mm. There's so many different play styles. It suits everyone, whether you've got loads of time to watch the games or, or you've got a busy life and you have to focus on maybe on, on stats and stuff like that. So that leads into my next question, and I probably mm. know the answer here. Are you more mm-hmm. eye test focused or stats focused? Well, I actually say I'm a bit of both. Again, I believe there needs to be a balance between the two to succeed. I think the biggest success stories in life in general, whether they be individual or team-based, are often born out of keeping an open mind to everything. So I try to balance the two. While me watching football has lessened in, the say, the last five or so years, I still do rely upon that eye test element. Um, stats has become more and more important as you know we've got more and more access to them these days. But I like to have a balance between the two. Yeah, I can, I can, I've, seen, I've noticed myself recently I've probably always been, for as long as I can remember, it's always eye test number one. I'm making my decisions first and foremost of what I've seen with my own eyes. But I think as as the years pass by, I'm probably seeing that shift a little bit more. You know, that there's probably more of a balance now for me. It's not, you know, 90% eye test, 10% stats. It's probably getting, it's not 50-50 yet, but certainly the, the eye test percentage for me is not as high as it used to be. And mm. I used to kind of get agitated if I didn't get to watch a game, you know, if I was planning to watch a game and something came up, I'd be thinking, right, I'm missing out here. I'm missing out on on research. But 
you know, as, as time goes on and as seasons pass by, it doesn't annoy me as much anymore because the numbers are there. And when we've got, you know, such great metrics like expected stats and stuff now, it, you know, it makes it, it makes it easier, I think, to miss games. And you can still be confident that your decisions going into a weekend are, are pretty sound. Just staying on stats, what stats do you use in your decision making and where do you go to find them? Because I also rely on the high test, I will typically only use the headline stats, such as goals, assists, shots, shots on target, attempted assists, alongside things like expected goals, expected assists. And I possibly look at player heat maps as well from time to time. As you would expect, I get a lot of this data from fantasyfootballfix.com, but it's typically headline data for me. You know, even with expected data, I was I was kind of very slow to convert to it. And I would say I'm still not you know, 100% behind it. I, I do use it now more than I ever have, but it, I remember in the early days, I was quite stubborn to it. You know, it, it was all new. People like Jeff Stelling were on, on Soccer Saturday saying, what the hell is this? What is expected goals? And I was in the, <laughs> I was in the same camp as Jeff at the time, but over, you know, you spend a lot of time playing, playing fantasy formats. You kind of learn very quickly that it's a very useful tool in our armory. So I've kind of added in alongside everything else, but I, I still like those kind of more analog stats, you know, the very simple, you know, shots on target, you know, chances created for midfielders, you know, shots in the box and stuff like that. And, and you know, defenders touches in the final third. So I still do look at all of that stuff, but it's very nice now to have the expected stuff kind of gives us just an all round picture in particular, if, if you don't have much time on a Friday, when you're making your transfers, it's, it's a nice place to go. Do you use your own statistical model? We see a lot of people doing this now. I don't personally do it. I'm just wondering if you do. I don't, but I do build my own bespoke custom stats tables using that feature of the same name on fantasyfootballfix.com. So on the website, you're able to tailor it to your own requirements and include the stats that you're willing to entertain and look at and the ones that you feel provide you with the best decision-making process. So I make my own tables but no, I don't create my own models. Yeah, that's something I've always enjoyed doing too over the years on on various websites is there's something nice about being able just to design your own table, you know, exactly how you want it with the stats that you value. So there's no, you know, one size fits all in terms of a stats table. So I've always enjoyed that. You know, you can go in on a Thursday or Friday then, you've got your own, you know, seven or eight stats for midfielders, seven or eight stats for forwards. It just cuts down, you know, time-wise as well rather than having to go and search everything. So yeah, I like doing that. Exactly. What about... What about algorithms? Do you use any of those? We see a lot of people using, you know, rate my team tools, points predictions, FPL review, Mikkel Talkfam's transfer algorithm. Do you look at any of those? As you probably suspect, I'd use things on fantasyfootballfix.com as well. So I use the assistant manager tool on there from time to time. I find that that's quite helpful for me to understand how my team is going to perform from a predicted points perspective. Uh, so I'm always looking for it to be around the 55 points mark in a single game week. And of course, there's going to be some variance there, but I'm looking to score myself close to 65 points a game week on average come the end of the season, as that should lead me to a top 10K. Admittedly, in those early game weeks, you're not going to be anywhere near that 65 point average mark, because as we know, when you get to the latter part of the season, the double game weeks, the single game weeks where there's going to be more variance as well and the casual player isn't perhaps paying too much attention, you can, of course, shoot up that average score. So that is my average that I'm looking at from the entirety of the season, so 65 points. So I'm trying to track around that all the time. And I guess I pay a bit more attention to that, say, from game week 25 onwards to see where I'm tracking. Um, but that assistant manager tool is very helpful to guide me, to give me an indication as to how many points my team is going to score in any given week. And then if I bring a player in in that tool, it might 
bump that up a little bit from say 52 points to 55 points uh, and then it can give me a little bit more of a projection over the coming game weeks as well so that's quite helpful that's very interesting you have like a specific number in mind as an average kind of over the course of the season have you found you know in recent seasons with you know the increased competition you know widely available information for all managers now have you found that you've had to increase that average or or has it kind of been like that for a few years now I think it's been like that for a few years, but of course it has changed. I guess I've only really adopted that maybe in the back of my mind. It might even be subconscious for the last two or three seasons. So prior to that, I wouldn't have been able to give you the numbers. But as you say, competition has got a little bit stiffer. There's more consistency with some of the explosive players like Salah, of course, and therefore captaincy halls are probably a lot bigger than what they used to be six or seven seasons ago. So I guess that score would naturally have gone up. Um, but yes, yeah, certainly from the last few years, the 65-point benchmark is pretty good to then get you into that top 10K. Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're hitting that average over a season, I'm sure you're, you're going to have a very, very good one. In terms of team value, do you build it by making early transfers or do you wait until after the press conference on a Friday to make your moves? In the early game weeks, I definitely do because I tried to set my team up for game week one with a playing bench. So I can then make more gambles and therefore increase my team value, which has always been very helpful for me from game week 20 onwards as we approach second wildcard and double game week territory. One luxury of having built a very good team value at the start, I've been able to comfortably swallow any price movements in the recent weeks, given the current situation we're finding ourselves in with COVID and postponements. So that's actually been very helpful for me. For me, when it comes to team value, as, as you probably know, I'm, I'm, I don't spend very much time at all monitoring, but it, always in those early weeks I do. You know, I, I can't say I completely ignore it because, as we know, early game weeks of the season, especially if you start your season off with 0.0 in your bank, you know, just one player rising 0.1 or falling 0.1, it kind of it's, it's really like a 0.5 change because everyone's either priced at zero or or 0.5. Uh, it, w- it would actually be quite nice in the future at some point at FPL if they shook up the price in a wee bit at the start of the season, you know, rather than a 7.0 or 7.5. If they add in a few 7.2s and 7.7s, I think that would make things a little bit more interesting. Mm, and definitely, probably for people like me who like to kind of avoid looking at price change websites and stuff, it would probably make my life life a little bit stressful, <laughs> less stressful. Sorry, in terms of planning. And I know now in COVID seasons, this is probably a different answer, but say in, in a normal season, let's go back three or four years ago, you know, how far in advance would you tend to plan ahead? I've always used a six game week model for planning. This seems to work when setting up for game week one. And then this works throughout the season two. Nevertheless, with the volatile landscape that we are currently facing, I'm not looking too far beyond three to four game weeks. and I'm not planning as much as I normally would. I don't really want to invest too much energy for it to be redundant a few days later if COVID strikes. So putting time in for nothing can lead to a negative state of mind, certainly with me. So I then feel like that leads me to making some rash decisions. So right now I'm taking more breaks from FPL related social media and content. And I'm trying to come back nearer to the deadline with a clearer mind. So I've adapted it a little bit, but the six game week model is definitely something that has lasted the test of time with me. I'm going to ask you a question. I, I'm going to throw, you, I did not send you this one across, so this might surprise yeah, you, but sure. I, th- I think there might be some learning for the listeners. You, you mentioned rash decisions there, and mm. you said you, you played your free hit just recently, and it didn't yes. go as well as, as you planned. So do you class that as a rash decision? And do you think you've learned anything from, from using it? Yeah, so I, I would say it was a little bit. I guess it's hindsight 
based, isn't it? Because it had it have obviously come off and I would have said, oh, well, it was a good decision in the end because there was doubles to be attacked. So the Everton lads that I brought in have been an absolute catastrophe. <laughs> um, I guess because it's been a, a negative outcome, then perhaps I might look at that in the light of it was maybe a bit more of a rash decision. I did make that decision very late. So I had given myself enough time. I actually made it on New Year's Day before the kickoffs. Looking at my team, I thought I can capitalise here a little bit. Quite a lot of people had played their free hit uh, in my mini leagues, but also in general a couple of weeks prior. So I still had two. So I thought, well, actually, I've got one in the bank anyway. Let's just let's just go for it. Let's try and attack it. So maybe it was rash. Maybe it wasn't. But one thing I will say is I think if you get that close to deadline, and even though I had some ideas as to the players that I wanted to include within that free hit, it wasn't just like a, a stab in the dark. Perhaps it was a little bit late in the day and maybe I should have just taken a minus four or minus eight at that point and brought in a couple of players that I wanted uh, on reflection. So I think sometimes you can leave things quite late and, and think that you've maybe given yourself a break from the content side of things and engaging in social media and actually then can come at it with a clear mind later on. But I think if you leave it too late and haven't perhaps given it too much thought, then again, yes, that can definitely lead to a rash decision. So I'd say it's a 50-50, but on reflection... Uh, I probably wouldn't make that decision again uh, so late in the day. Yeah, the, the reason I asked you was because it reminded me of a scenario I was in myself probably four or five seasons ago. I did exactly the same thing. I made a very late decision to wildcard on New Year's Day. And I remember, first of all, our issue is when there's deadlines on Boxing Day and New Year's Day, it's a recipe for disaster. Even if you're having a few drinks, it's very, very <laughs> difficult to make clear-headed decisions the next morning. I remember my alarm went off at 10.45 the deadline was at 11.30. So I had 45 minutes to, to do a panicked wildcard and it was disastrous. And again, the learning there was, you know, I think around Christmas time and New Year, those dodgy deadlines, you know, early on a Boxing Day or on New Year's Day, you've got to be very, very careful with them. And you've almost got to decide probably a day or two before if you're if you're going to do it. And if it's likely that you're going to free hit or wildcard, you know, have the draft ready because you don't want to do like, do what I did and, and panic. And, you know, cost yourself quite a few points over the next couple of games. So, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. So, hope you didn't mind me throwing that question in there. Absolutely not. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. In terms of player ownership, so does player ownership slash effective ownership influence your decisions? Depends, really. At the start, no. But if I'm falling behind my target or in the lead of a mini league, so I'm falling behind, yes. So behind the target, I would say I'll look to find the next gem with a lower ownership quicker. Obviously, this requires more time and effort with research. And then I guess if I'm ahead in a mini league or I'm ahead of my 
target that I've set myself from a rank perspective early on, then I'll play it safe with captaincy picks and transfers. I'll wait until that gem has had a good couple of games and then I'll invest. So if you're in that position, you're very fortunate. You don't have to invest so much time and effort into research is what I've always found. When you're a little bit behind, that's when you're perhaps in that area which could go wrong because you're obviously thinking a little bit more and you're doing more research. But yes, I would be looking to try and find that gem a bit quicker and you might jump on things sooner. But I've had a good start to the season this year and I'm typically a very slow starter when it comes to fantasy football. And then obviously... As time goes, I start clawing things back. But as I'm in a relatively good position right now, I found myself not having to put as much effort and time in and I can kind of be reactive rather than proactive, which has been quite good, actually. I feel the same. I think we're, we're in a similar rank at the moment. Mm. Uh, and it, I always feel like you're, if, you're, if your season's going well and your rank is in a good position, it's like a striker. I always think you're playing with confidence and you've got conviction in your decisions. When it comes to a Friday, you're not second-guessing yourself. So when things are going well, I always find it's, it's much easier to make decisions. So in terms of ownership as well, I always say that I, you know, I don't let it influence my decisions. I, I totally mm. ignore ownership. But if I, it's not 100% true because it's impossible to completely mm. ignore it. I think mm. we're going into a double yeah. game week now where, where Ronaldo's got a double game week. And I always think sometimes in FPL, you've kind of got your set, set yourself up not to lose as opposed to setting yourself up to win in a certain game week. And, you know, for example, if you're going into a, a game week where Ronaldo has a double game week, regardless of what his form or Manchester United's form is, if you don't own him, I always feel it's, it's dangerous. And, and I guess, you know, that's that's taking ownership into consideration because, you know, he's probably going to be the most captain player in a game week. Mm. And sometimes you, I think you even need to Sometimes you need to buy a player if you don't like them or if you don't mm. rate them, just as a you know, to protect yourself, you know, just to stabilize your rank, you know, get through the double game week, whether Ronaldo gets 30 points or four points, you know, at least you're on the same same page as most other people, and you're kind of protecting yourself. And then it's in, in the game weeks after that where where I tend to try and make up ground in. So that's just a, a little point on ownership there as well. I completely agree with that, Mark. I think when you're in those positions of strength, as you say. You don't want to take any risks. So a Ronaldo transfer in if you don't own him or if you own him to make sure that you captain him, knowing that his ownership could be in excess of 150% is definitely sensible. I guess on the flip side, and it can be dangerous, as you quite rightly pointed out, if you are behind and you know, you're know you 15th in a mini league where there might be prizes for top five or what have you, so you're quite a way off or your ranks down, you know, in the couple of hundred thousand Ks, that's where you might go, right, well, maybe I will take a little bit of a risk here and just hope that he doesn't do anything because it can obviously rise me up those ranks. And and at the end of the day, you have to do something at some point, right? The later you leave it, the harder it gets. So it's really hard. And I think depending on your position can be very impactful on that decision-making process. So I completely agree. Yeah, really good points there. In terms of point hits how many hits mm-hmm. do you usually take over the course of a season so uh, as, as pointed out earlier a bit more aggressive at the start uh, and therefore I take a fair few hits over the course of a season I'd say it's between 10 and 14 hits so that's uh, around 40 to 52 points I would say over the course of the season which is is quite high I know um, quite a lot of veteran managers will be a lot less than that I'd say the majority of those come in the early game weeks as I said, so far this year, I've taken 10 hits uh, in 21 game weeks so far. So I'm already around that lower point of, of the across the season. Six of those came in the first seven game weeks. 
Uh, and then I wildcarded in game week eight. So I had quite a bad start, but I built up a good bit of team value, which helped me on my wildcard in game week eight. And then actually from, from game week eight to 16, I didn't take one hit. So, you know, first seven game weeks, six, and then the next eight or, or probably nine game weeks, if you include game week eight alongside game week 16, then I didn't take a single one. I've actually taken four in the last five game weeks, though, um, from sort of um, game week um, 17 onwards. And I guess that's probably higher than normal because of the games being pulled or postponed and obviously having to just try and work around that. I don't think I would have probably made as many hits had it not been for games being moved around, et cetera, at this point in the season. So mine are definitely heavily weighted to the start of the season where I feel like I want to jump on those bandwagons early and build that early team value, which I feel like helps me later on. Um, but yeah, I mean, between 10 and 14 hits over the course of the season is not my normal sort of numbers. Yeah, that's quite a few. It's, it's probably more than I take. You know, historically, I'm probably probably minus 20 over the season, you know, maybe minus mm-hmm. 24, minus 28, but not much more. But obviously... COVID FPL leads to a lot more point sets, even for the most conservative managers like myself. Staying on hits for a second, do you have a specific rule or approach to taking hits? You know, in what circumstances do you feel a hit is justified? I mean, if a player is on a heater like Ben Rama was at the start of the season after game weeks one and two, I feel like hit there is justified. Some others will say it's not when you look at the analytics, but I think price rises and potentially a lot of points that could be missed sway me. And I'm always reminded of real life scenarios rather than looking at the analytic side of things to the nth degree. I remind myself of a real scenario. So Mares in Leicester's title winning season 2015-16 is the perfect example. I was too late. Again, I was probably too patient there. That was my worst ever season because I was too patient. I mean, sometimes I think those hits can be uh, worth it and if if not I mean, it's only four points and, and that can obviously be distributed over the course of the season it's quite a little amount of points when you've got so many game weeks left so that was definitely an example to me and I've always remembered that uh, front of mind that I should react so I think it's better to get on the train in an ugly fashion rather than miss the train completely I also made about 0.3 million when I brought in Ben Rama at the start before I decided that his form had waned a little bit and I was happy to move him out for some profit when I played my wild card in game week eight. So I think early on it's worth it. You don't want to miss those because like I said, I'm always reminded of that Maris scenario where he went on to score, I think 250 odd points when he started the season at just 5.5 million and he was 6.1, 6.2 pretty quickly. You bring back good memories for me there because the, the Leicester title winning season was one of my best, was one of my top 500s, but Amazing. I had Maris for 38 game weeks, but Wow. I didn't have Vardy. I was very, very late to the Vardy party. And I mean, he scored. You'd have won it if you had Vardy, Mark. Exactly. And it's it's a bit of a sore point for me because I, I wonder how high I could have finished if I had him because he went on a, on a streak of, I think he, he broke a record, wasn't it? Like 10 or 11 games he scored consecutively. Yeah. And I was yeah. very stubborn at the time. I was like, this is not going to last. This is not going to last. And I learned a very valuable lesson that season by just being stubborn. I was very, very stubborn. I think it was the mm. same season Odie and Agallo was doing really well. And I was stubborn with yeah. him as well. And yeah. from that season on, I said, I'm, I'm never going to be stubborn with players again. Even if I don't rate them, I'm just going to bite the bullet. And if they're hurting just my rank, just, just got it. you just got to do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Torre and Aaron Ramsey and other examples around that era, aren't they, where you can be stubborn. They're not going to keep this up. And it's kind of a, a similar example in Smith Rowe. I know he's been benched in recent weeks, but a lot of people have said, you know, the underlings just aren't there. He's, he's basically heavily exceeding his expected goals volume. But Ramsey was doing a similar type of thing, you know, arriving in the box 
late. And one thing there, just to go back to a point that you referenced earlier, slight off tangent, but you referred to expected goals, expected assists. One thing that I consider with that, which some people I feel don't, because I really like the statistics and I actually use them quite a lot. Now I've got to understand them a lot more, but of course it doesn't factor in ability. It's, it's saying that if Messi took that shot in that position and if, you know, a retired Teddy Sheringham took that shot, it would still be the 0.08 of an expected goal, whereas it's not actually taking in physical abilities of these players. So again, pinch of salt with that. And, and that's where perhaps in the past we might not have had XG back then, maybe you know, Aaron Ramsey times and Riyad Mahrez. But these players were exceptional. Riyad Mahrez is an example of you watched him. Eye test would have been perfect there. Again, had I watched more games, I don't think I actually watched too many of those opening games in that season for whatever reason. Perfect example of, look at this guy, high on confidence, bring him into your team, don't be stubborn, perhaps even take a, you know, a hit if it's needed. Yeah, that's again, it's making me think of a, of a good eye test example. The reason I picked Mares in game week one that season was it was from the last four or five games of the previous season. And it was probably just the highlights of, of Leicester games. And this guy... He was kind of just coming on the scene and he he looked like he had something about him. And I remember vividly myself and my Auntie Mary, who's a big fantasy football player herself, just the day before the season started, we were both struggling for the last, you know, cheap midfielder position. And I mm-hmm. think I remember saying, look, Mary, Mario's look good at the end of last season. Let's take a punt on him. We both did. And obviously had, had very good seasons off the back of him. So, yeah, again, if I wasn't watching games, at the end exactly. of that season, or even just highlights, I probably wouldn't have spotted Mares and, and what he was capable of. So that's you know one of my one of my best ever decisions in FPL was picking him game week one that season. So yeah, good. You're filling me with with great memories here. <laughs> in terms of chips, so first of all, do you tend to use the first wild card early, and then when it comes to bench boost, triple captain, and free hit, how how do you tend to play those? I don't have the data, but I'd say my average first wild card play would be game week three or four. So I take it quite early. I've always liked to play in an international break because that first two weeks where this gap is just so slow and it feels like an urge to tinker. Um, so it's not very strategical, I know. However, from a strategic perspective, you can also jump on those early bandwagons and correct anything else with free transfers thereafter if it doesn't quite work out on that wild card. As I've suggested already, I like to arrive at the party while there's still food to eat. So I'm happy to go early. This year, actually, wildcard in game week eight again another international break so it killed a bit of time for me and gave me a bit of a entertainment um while there was no football on and that that was helpful for sure i mean it turned my season around i wasn't doing too good to be fair i perhaps i maybe left it too long i was about 600k in game week eight and then from game week eight after i played my wildcard sort of game week 16 i shot up right into the top sort of 50k or so so i really turned things around in those seven or eight game weeks so maybe there's something to be said for leaving it a little bit later because you can then obviously jump on the form so i've always done it early in regards to when do i play that and as for other chips I typically try to use them later in the season when we have an idea on double game weeks and blank game weeks, like most other veteran managers. I like to play my second wildcard just before a big double game week. Um, That's something I'll always look to do. And again, circumstantially, if my team just looks terrible, then I'll have to just put that out the window. But I really do try to bite the bullet on that. Even if my team's not looking great, I'd rather take maybe a couple of hits knowing that I can set myself up in a fantastic way if I am actually fully aware of a a big double game week, say in game week 35, 36, when we've seen them before. And then I'd look to bench boost, of course, because I'll have close to 15 double game week players. And again, 
leaving them until later in the season also means that the additional team value that I've accrued comes in handy as well for me. So I'll just try to leave those chips as late as possible when my team value might be around 105, 107 million. How do you approach captaincy? Do you have a specific strategy for choosing your captain each week? Form and fixture for me, nothing more to it really. We've had some very explosive players in recent years, namely Salah, and that makes it really easy right now. If a player has averaged over seven points per game across a span longer than six game weeks, they have my attention basically. And that that has been Salah for a long period of time. We've seen the likes of Kane, De Bruyne and Fernandez in recent memory having those types of average points per game over, like I said, a span of six, seven, eight game weeks or longer. So, you know, when we're 14 game weeks into the season, we've got enough game weeks there, hopefully that they've played if they're not injured, like Kane and De Bruyne. But if they have played, you know, 12, 13 of those game weeks and they're averaging over seven points, they have my attention, irrespective of how well Salah is playing. They'll still have my attention if they've got the likes of Burnley at home and Salah may have, you know, uh, a Man United away or something like that. So form and fixture. And then I'm looking for that around seven points per game average. Yeah, pretty similar for me. I think I've, I've simplified my captaincy decisions to the point now where it comes to a Friday and I spend maybe five or 10 minutes. You know, I've in the run up to it, I've already kind of drawn up a bit of a captaincy matrix. So, you know, maybe five, six, seven weeks ahead, you know, looking at, you know, which players are the best captains for those game weeks, you know, Am I going to be able in a position to own them? And if I, you know, identify a gap where I'm without a very strong captain, you know, that's going to affect my transfer plans coming up to that. But yeah, for me, it's it's very simple. You've got your your expensive players for a reason. They're reliable. You know, they play for the best teams when they've got good fixtures. I don't overthink it. I don't go. I I never really go. You know, off the charts with a with a rogue captaincy decision. It's people can very easily guess who my captain's going to be from week to week. You know, if if you could see my team. Moving away from, from FPL self for, for a couple of questions here. I'm going to group these together because they're kind of all related. So how much mm-hmm. time do you spend on the likes of Twitter, Reddit, websites and forums each week? Are you online every day? Do you listen to FPL podcasts, football podcasts or watch any FPL content on YouTube? And how do you manage the overload of information available to us these days? Okay, so I'll start with the websites. I probably check in most days. But I do try my best to limit my time dedicated to the social media platforms. It's just so easy to get sucked in these days. And you can waste a lot of time that could be used more productively in life in general. I have a habit of defaulting to opening the Twitter app with my brain completely in subconscious mode. You know, I'll wake up and the first thing I'll do is, you know, you just default to go into that area where that app is on your phone. You don't even know what you're doing. You're just defaulting. So sometimes I may even delete the app for a few days. I know that you've been a big proponent of this in the past as well. And you said that you do it as well, Mark, for our conversations. But particularly, I'll do that after a bad game week. I find that it helps a lot just to kind of channel. In terms of podcasts, I listen to a few a month. I like the shorter formats, to be honest. Anything under an hour is absolutely perfect for me. Um, I could be doing a bit of exercise. I could be doing something on my computer, designing or what have you. And and an hour format is perfect for me because, of course, I want to get up and move around as well um, if I'm doing something in front of the computer. So hour, spot on. Um, And then how do I manage the overload of information? Limiting time spent online. 
you know, or around apps where the information is just so readily available. There's just so much of it these days. So I find that helps a lot, but it takes some incredible discipline. If I have some free time, I will always default to looking for football related stories or videos on my phone. Um, and you can just get sucked in, as I've already said. So again, it takes incredible discipline. I wouldn't say I was the best at it. So I tried to take some very you know, uniformed approaches, whether that be deleting an app or moving the apps around on my phone or whatever, even out of sight, out of mind, just take your phone away, just go and put it in a cupboard, you know, for a few hours or when you're out, just don't take it with you. Most recently I went for a meal with the missus and, and we wanted to celebrate a few things. Just don't take your phone with you. It's a recipe for disaster, particularly if there's games on, there's football on. Oh, forget it. You'll end up looking at it in the toilet or whatever. And sometimes you're just not even there. So I just don't bother taking my phone to places. Now I find that that's the best method of attack for me so that I don't just get sucked in. Yeah. Likewise, um, I was at a, I was at a wedding recently and I was just talking to a guy <laughs> and he's, whatever we were talking about, it was, it could have been my dog or something probably. And he, he says, you know, show me a picture. And automatically I went to my pocket to get my phone. And then I realized I didn't have it because I, I I'm like you, I quite often like leaving it behind uh, if I'm going out somewhere. Uh, and it's it's the best way. It's the best way to switch off. And I was laughing when you mentioned moving apps around your phone because I've I found myself doing it recently. It's it's bizarre. You know, us human beings were so strange. I'll take the Twitter app. You know, I'll drag it and I'll I'll find a little folder somewhere else and I'll put it in there. But does it stop me going on? Absolutely not, because obviously I put it there, <laughs> so I, so I know where it is. Um, I I yeah, yeah, just I agree on you know deleting apps from time to time. You know, leaving your phone. Not even sometimes just leaving putting the phone in a different room. You know, sometimes I'll just. Mm. You know, put my bed, uh, put my phone up in the bedroom at you know six in the evening if I'm watching a game or something because you really just focus in and it's so much more enjoyable to just watch ninety minutes without without the second screen experience. I find because you get mm-hmm. like you say you go you go down rabbit holes before long. You're watching twenty five minute reels of Ronaldinho on YouTube and you're like, what what the hell am I doing here? So yeah. All the time, exactly that. Things can take a lot longer uh, than they should because you just sat there, <laughs> like you said, you've gone down a rabbit hole. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One of my favorite questions, how do you cope with a bad game week? Mm. I guess I touched upon a few points there. So, you know, we all need a bad game week to remind us what is important in life. So I've kind of got this new mindset now um, where I kind of actually relish them. I actually like it. Um, and, and the reason is because we we apply so much negative energy to a bad game week when actually we can flip that around completely. So I now with a bad game week just completely refocus my attention. I know that it's going to allow me to spend more time with my family and doing things 
that I enjoy outside of FPL, because believe it or not, we, us, us crazy people do have some hobbies outside of FPL. Um, and look, if every week was a green arrow, we would completely lose ourselves and we'd be so lonely. <laughs> so I welcome it. And um, yeah, I just welcome it and just step aside. And um, yeah, like I said, uh, I try to enjoy them now because I know that it, it allows me that opportunity to, to focus on other things, which is good. I really like that. I really like how you, you you frame it in a way that you know you're going to have them anyway. So why not when they arrive, use them to turn them into a positive? So I think that's I think that's something a lot of us could take away from from this episode. Absolutely. Because then when if you do that, if you know a bad game week is going to arrive, let's say in the next three or four game weeks, when it does actually happen, then it's not as bad because you've already mentally prepared yourself for it, and you can exactly. like you say, get out exactly. and do something else then. When it comes to the debate of skill versus luck in this game, what are your views on it? And if you could put a percentage on it for us. I've long thought about this, to be honest, in terms of what is the percentage you have, you know, discussions every year, probably at some point about this. And I think if I had to put a number on it, I'd probably say it's around 70 skill, 30 luck. There's arguments to go higher or lower on that, on that number, I know. Uh, and there are many managers that have consistently had strong ranks year after year. So the skill definitely outweighs luck, in my opinion. And um, I think there's enough data there to suggest that. Could it be closer to 60-40? Sure. I know there are arguments for it with how things are right now uh, in the current climate. And could it be closer to 80-20, 80 skill? Yeah, sure. I, definitely, in my opinion. Take away COVID from the scenario, which is obviously added to that luck element. You know, prior to that, you've got people that have got fantastically consistent histories. And then that there in itself proves that there's a lot of, of skill within this game. You know, we can do everything in our armory to prepare. The can control, can't control. You can't control the outcome, but you can control what you put in, how you plan. You know, that six game week window that I talked about earlier. We can do enough to allow us to not be so unlucky, right? Particularly if you've got a bench of two or three players as a backup, you've prepared. Some others might not do that because they might be playing it more casually. So yeah, I think 70-30, 80-20 is, is a good benchmark in terms of percentages for me. Yeah, for me, again, skill versus luck. Whenever, whenever it comes up, I always just think back to the, to the Elite 64 Mini League, you know, and everyone who's getting interviewed on this podcast. You know, when you go and look at their records, you know, there's managers who never ever have a bad season and and are getting consistently you know whether it's top 30k top 40k every mm -hmm. single season not for just five years for for 10 to 15 years and when you've got that i think that's that's enough evidence for me that there's a you know a huge amount of skill in this game more skill than luck now i'm yes. i'm not going to put a percentage on it but i'm probably <laughs> similar to what you said yeah. uh, and again in particular in a normal season you know before covid times you know, 70-30, I think, is a, is a pretty good split there. Is there anything you do that you think most other managers don't do, which gives you an edge? I've always liked my aggressive approach to the start of the game. I think if it's executed with due care and attention, it can work wonders in the long term. You know, I'm not out there just willy-nilly making transfers. I'm obviously trying to plan. And again, you need that eye test. That's very important. You know, you can't be aggressive if you're not watching any football, in my opinion. You have to watch some. You can't just go on stats at that point. You know, at the start of the season, it's critical to watch some highlights. If you've got a busy lifestyle, fine, no problem. I have. I've got distractions. I can't watch too much football, as I've already referenced on this pod. But you have to watch some sort of highlights at the start because you'll see a, a player will just come out of nowhere. 
that you, you know, Ben Rama, for instance, this year, he didn't carry it on fine, but the reaction at that point, and it wasn't a bad one was to jump on that because he then went on and he, he had a couple of assists and goals thereafter. But if you hadn't have watched that and seen how well West Ham were playing, you know, the data probably underneath it in terms of the underlyings probably wasn't great, et cetera. So yeah, I think, you know, early on, it's definitely wise to watch football. Again, I think that that for me sets me apart because quite a lot of veteran managers these days are quite cautious uh, in how they play. So I do try to be a bit aggressive early on. Sometimes it can hamper me in terms of how I start, but with the setup and the grounding, I've always found that that's just worked well for me. And, you know, until it completely goes absolutely all wrong two or three seasons in a row, I'll probably stick to that type of mentality. Yeah, I think the most important thing you said there was it works well for me. And, you know, listeners to this podcast in particular, if, if you're a new manager to the game, it'll probably take you two or three seasons to kind of feel the game out and figure out what kind exactly. of manager you are. I always say it takes a couple mm. of seasons and then you can decide whether you're you're a, you're a me who's very boring and conservative or, or if you're a Craig and you like to be a bit more aggressive. But you've got to, mm-hmm. you've got to do what kind of suits your own style and your own personality as a, as a fantasy manager. Do you have any weaknesses in your game that you're always striving to improve on? Look, who doesn't need to work on their patience in life, right? That's definitely something that I try to manage. Uh, I know my style is more impatient than others, but sometimes this can be a good thing as I've referenced. It's just knowing when to push and when to stick. I always try to remind myself that styles quite often need to be adapted to succeed. So based on varying circumstances, let's use obviously this season and last as an example with postponements and COVID again, I think, you know, you need to try to ensure that you don't get stuck in your ways. So that's one thing that I always try to improve upon or at least remind myself of every season is that don't get stuck in your ways. You know, I've I've referenced the fact that I like to play aggressively early on with this game and at points sometimes in the season, but I do adapt to circumstances. So as you saw earlier, when I referenced the fact that I didn't make any hits from, you know, game week eight to 16, you know, I can be very conservative, very patient, very boring. And I'll just adapt to the to the current situation. So as much as styles are important and you should stick to it and, and it does give you the best results. And if it's worked well for you, then you know, don't try to break something that's not broken. I think that you also need to be very agile in your mindset. So every year I'm just making sure that I remind myself not to get weak in that department and be too stubborn and stuck in my ways. I'm basically reminding myself, look, what works now might not work next season. So just constantly be agile. Yeah, great answer. I mean, adaptability is is so important in FPL. You know, we've had so many different kinds of seasons recently. And that's, I always go back to those managers who never have a bad season. The reason is because they adapt. Every single season is different and they shake up their game and, and make those little tweaks wherever, wherever they need to. Here is one of my, one of my favorite questions as well. I'm always interested to hear the answer to this one. Do you see yourself retiring from FPL anytime soon? As much as I would actually like to step away, I do not think I could or would want to. I think the love-hate is very strong. And uh, that's a good thing, right? I mean, it makes us passionate about this game and wanting to improve and wanting to succeed. Um, But as it's so strong, as much as I would love to step away, I know it would give me so much more time. (laughs) I'd be able to revolutionize revolutionize my life, probably become like a Buddhist monk, very chilled out, um, more happy around the family. (laughs) I, I don't think I could step away. However, if I want it, You've heard it here first. I would retire, definitely. And I've seen, obviously, that you know, there are a couple of winners within our community that are carried on. 
So maybe I'll regret saying this, but if I won it, that would be it. I, I would I would step away. I'm the exact same. I'm the exact same. If, I mean, what's the point playing on if you won it? You're not gonna. You're not gonna. Done. You're not gonna win it again. You know, you can't beat you it. See that rank one. He's gone. Yeah, he's yeah. just gone. <laughs> and I think Retiring. it's going to be. It's going to be a common answer too. I think a lot of the veterans, like ourselves, have been playing for a long time. If we could retire tomorrow, we, you know, I know we can, but I think a lot of us are are very attached to this game. And an addict yeah. is probably a word that a lot of us would probably use about ourselves in Definitely. terms of the game as well. And I think in terms of Buddhist monks, I think if you if you put all the Buddhist monks in the world together, and you asked any of them if they've ever played FPL before, I'd say the answer is probably no. So I think the Buddhist monks are probably safe from, from people like myself and yourself turning up in the mountains. <laughs> Until we win it. Exactly. I'll finish with this one. Favourite FPL memory or memories? Uh, there, there's just so many. Um, there's been some classics over the years. I'm sure you've got some great ones too, Mark. Uh, I think for me, the standout in recent times was when I owned Delafeo. Uh, and he scored a hat-trick as well as assisted a goal away at Cardiff in the 2018-19 season, if I'm recalling that correctly. He was owned by no one. I believe his ownership at the time, I don't even know if there was live ownership figures at that point, but uh, not accurate ones anyway. But I think it was like a couple of percent. It was like one and a half percent. He was owned by nobody. Um, he was very cheap, like 5.3 million or something like that. And, you know, he looked okay. So was, that was an eye testing. No stats, no numbers, just someone to have there on the bench. And obviously away at Cardiff, they weren't playing great. So I whacked him in. And uh, the game was on a Friday night as well, of all things, right? That, we, that was early adopted uh, in terms of actually playing games on a Friday night, it probably might have even been the trial season. I can't remember exactly when it was, but I know it wasn't too long ago. Uh, and that was now for three or four seasons ago. So that was just the highlight for me, you know, rocking up with 23 points from one player and obviously 23 points from my team on that Friday evening. No one had any players. Um, that was absolutely euphoric for me. And it's those little memories that are unique to you that just really stand out. Yeah, I love that one. I remember it clearly. I remember it was a lot of people jumped on Delafue probably six, seven weeks before that. And he did absolutely nothing for <laughs> weeks. And 95% of managers had sold him. And there was a lot of managers who were just for, for different reasons, you know, other fires to fight, ha- had him for some reason still on their team. And that, that Friday night was, was, was amazing for those managers. Yeah, yeah. Patience worked for me then. So there you go. You've got, you've got to have an agile style, right? Yeah, I exactly. like to be aggressive, but again, I was patient then. Or, or as you say, I might have been forced to because I had other fires to fight. <laughs> Probably the latter. Thanks again for joining me, Craig. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Best of luck for the rest of the season. Keep smashing it. Thanks very much, Mark. And you too, mate. Like I said, we're very similar in rank. I noticed that you were around 10K as well at this point of the season. So... Let's see what we can do. Top 5 k has got to be the aim hopefully now. Hopefully one right? of us is retiring at the end of the season. <laughs> yeah, I should, I should set my bar higher, not top 5k. Let's get that win and let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> Mauritius is calling. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this episode, folks. Episode 4 will be released soon, so make sure to hit subscribe to the podcast to get notified when it drops. And also check out the first two episodes with Heisenberg and FPL Salah if you haven't already. They are great. Talk to you soon. The Athletic. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. 
From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.